All right. Hey, welcome everybody to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. How's everyone doing? Hope you're all doing well. Hope you've had a good week. Happy Memorial Day. Thank you to all our heroes and service women and men in our forces who sacrificed of their time, their money, who are away from their families, unfortunately, sometimes their lives. We honor you and we thank you for all of your great service for our countries. We appreciate all that you have done for us. We know we act like spoiled, rotten brats, and we think freedom doesn't cost anything. Our Memorial Day is meant to pull us back into the proper frame of mind and say, we do love and appreciate you. So on this Memorial Day, we do honor you on Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. I'm one day early. How's everybody doing? Who all's here? Mike, Mark, Crispin. Good to see you, buddy. Peter Higgs, welcome. Ah, uh, let's see. Lorena, Cornella, Dan Vogel. Very good to see you, Doug Vincent. Good to see you. Fine business operator. All the good people are coming in like crazy. Four likes already. You guys are too generous. Okay, let me... Don't know what good that pen's going to do. I've got to arrange my stuff here so that I can get my drinks in order so that I can, you know, chug a lug water when I need to. Yeah, that's water. That That is not ever clear. If I was to drink that as Everclear, whoo doggy, that would be something. This week has been a really fascinating week. Weather-wise, it's been much cooler than I expected. I did get my mobile garden planted, however. Yeah, baby. We bought those 15-gallon movable sacks, garden sacks, and uh, I've been planting some Ah, squash and beans and uh, pole beans and bush beans and chard, lots of chard and spinach. Love spinach. I've got some tomatoes I'll be putting out next week. Got some crookneck squash, some butternut squash. I'm really looking forward to the harvest this year. Time to start growing our own food. Quit depending on our food totally on everything else because we are heading for some tough 
times. And it would be remiss of me not to tell you in all sobriety and sincerity, uh, when you go to the store and you grab that can of food on the shelf and put it in your cart, you best grab six or seven instead of one. Now is the time while it's available. This fall, we're heading into some rough times. So time to get prepared. That's all I'm going to talk about on that. Uh, things are not looking good. If you want proof, just look at the price of diesel. That is not a conspiracy theory. That does not lie. It used to cost me last year at this time, $87 to fill my work truck. The other day, it cost me $167. The gas price doesn't lie. Since everything is delivered on diesel, that means prices of everything are going up. What's available? So anyway, without getting into the further nitty-gritty details and all, just, you know, I love you, my friends. Uh, don't be a foolish virgin in the parable of Jesus's five wise and five foolish virgins. Trim your wick, buy extra food, make sure you have a supply of water on hand, and get the hell out of debt as fast as you know how, right? Remember, you can't eat the electronic digits in your bank account. True, it is a form of wealth, but it's time to put your wealth into something that you can directly be benefited from. Yeah, you know, this one's looking rough. The housing market's looking bad. Automobiles are virtually at work. We had to try to acquire a van for our maintenance uh, facility. Uh, they are not accessible. So I'm just saying. Things are things are getting iffy. So, welcome everybody. Patty Cake, how are you? JB, maybe yes. Good to see you, Tim Rathbone. Thank you for showing up. Good to see you again. Okay, we're all here. Well, several of us are. More and more are filtering in. Welcome everybody. I have a great subject tonight that I want to be as realistic as I can and as historically responsible as I can on this subject because it is a controversial subject. The secret and somewhat dark and mysterious council of the 50. Joseph Smith formed through Revelation this council of 50 just three months before he was murdered. So he wasn't the head of this council for very long at all. And then it continued on in existence for a few years after that. But what is this council of the 50? We've only ever only had inklings, bits and pieces and tissues of stories and conspiracy theories, etc. No, this was not the Danites but it was a very real council. And it held many, many important things that 
it was involved with that I want to talk about tonight. Now, this last week, again, the Joseph Smith Papers, all of those tabs, I've got a couple dozen in that one. This is an 800-page volume in the Joseph Smith Papers. The uh, I've taken the cover off, the dust cover. Well, you guys know what the dust covers look like. For Pete's sake, by now you ought to be able to recognize them. The Joseph Smith Papers series, they have like, what, 15, 16, 17 volumes now. Dan Vogel would know better than I do. I have not kept track of them all, and I have not bought them all yet. Uh, they're pretty pricey. They are available online for free, which is extremely nice. So this particular one is the administrative records with which I'm going to jump into. Uh, the Church Historians Press, it was published 2016, I do believe. Uh, fairly new, huge text, absolutely delightful text. Now, uh, through his exquisite historical research, finesse, capability, fecundity, stupendous intellect, etc., D. Michael Quinn, the Mormon hierarchy origins of power, uh, also has discussed this Council of 50, some of its goals, some of its reasons for existing, etc. There have been pros and cons, uh, articles written on it that have been very uh, historically enlightening. There's been other arguments that have been just flat out ridiculous. I don't want to get into the ridiculous aspect of this. I want to do a responsible, uh, historical, somewhat philosophical and religious theological uh, interpretation of this incredible time in United States political history, as well as Mormon political and theocratic history. Uh, it's fantastic. I, it has changed my perception. I've watched, uh, what, there's five, six different uh, videos. Some of them are back in 2016 when the, the various editors of the Joseph Smith papers and other Mormon historians, Richard Bushman, put together a panel with uh, several of the prominent Matthew Grow, one of the uh, editors of this text. He has a video out. He also did a fair presentation in 2016 on the Council of the 50. There was a Virginia State University, I believe, or University of Virginia, I can't remember which now, who had a panel of excellent scholars, uh, male and female, on the various aspects. This is the stuff that the church did not put into its history. Uh, in the priesthood meeting manuals, the Sunday school books, etc., uh, it is probably the uh, Kathleen Flake uh, in one of her presentations on the YouTube video, absolutely excellent, uh, described this era 
uh, this six months before Joseph Smith was murdered, the tensions in Nauvoo had been exploding uh, both from the outside and from within. I, I thought that was real interesting. You had had the John C. Bennett issue. You have the William Law issue show up in this era, and he was involved in so much of the intimate workings, the inner workings of how to help save Nauvoo, save the church, etc. And William Law, now um, a, a very good friend of mine, uh, Mike Wagner, has has been. We have been discussing the importance of some of the lesser-known LDS personalities, William Law being one of the most important, him and a few other dissenters, and I knew I was going to do this. I'm having a, a brain lapse here. Anyway, they fundamentally, when they found out, now they were good friends. They were good people, close confidence of Joseph Smith. And when they found out what Joseph Smith was doing with polygamy, they they said, whoa, whoa, time out, cowboy. What the heck? Come on. And they opposed him. And so, no, the Council of the Fifty was not meant to be the guys who go out and threaten all the apostates and people who disagree with them. That wasn't it. If you've read something to that effect, the Joseph Smith Papers text will correct us. And, and, and I'll get into that a little bit tonight. The, uh, the internal dissension got hot. Yeah. For, for the, let's say, the remaining year uh, the last of Joseph Smith's life. It was really getting hot. Now, this was the era, like Richard Bushman properly uh, approached and discussed in a generalized term, this, <clears throat> this was the era where Joseph Smith just was magnified. Uh, his teachings were just expansive. His power, uh, he became governor. He became the head of the militia. He ran for the United States presidency. Incidentally, in United States history, Joseph Smith very well could have been the first assassination presidential candidate who was assassinated. Uh, Radio Free Mormon told me that on the telephone. And uh, I thought, wow, I'm going to mention that. So now he's not sure. Don't quote him. And I'm not either. But I mean, the the Republic had only been in existence for 60 years or so. And so there wasn't that many before him who had been candidates. And perhaps he was. So, I mean, he's in, he's in this thing thick. But this is where he acquired just so much power. And then, of course, he became the head of this Council of 50. And I will express a little bit more of his expansion of power, his acquisition of councils, counseling in order 
to help solve their serious personal, propertied, political, religious, and yeah, even their psychological problems and issues, not only with just the mobs, but with each other, with their own doctrinal understandings that, depending on how you look at it, at it, it either evolved or devolved into internal, almost internecine war, and that caused an enormous amount of problems for all parties involved. The states were not helping the saints. The federal government was not helping the saints. It never did respond, nor did it help reimburse their millions of dollars of lost property and lives when they were expelled from Missouri, exterminated from Missouri. And so Joseph Smith formed this council, and it was real interesting how in their in their gathering, like Kathleen Flake uh, noted in one of her YouTube presentations, uh, it wasn't the Virginia one. It was one with, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I've watched so many of them. Richard Bushman was kind of chairing the session, and, and they had like five or six different experts in this specific era uh, in time of the Nauvoo uh, politics and history and religion and the broader American contextual political uh issues that were looming large on the horizon and how those clashed and intermeshed with what was happening within Mormonism. It's a great YouTube video. I think you can Google it, Council of the 50, something like that, and find it. Each one of the videos are maybe 45 minutes to an hour, and I've been able to watch half a dozen of them on this subject. Really good way to learn about the Council of the 50. The best way, of course, is to read the Joseph Smith papers. Now, I haven't been able to read this entire volume yet, but I'm about halfway through it, and I've read the first half of it now twice, highlighting, underlining some stuff so that I can share with you some ideas because I don't want to miscontext it and then later be accused of being a dunderhead and just being an anti-Mormon. I'm not an anti-Mormon. That's not my intent tonight. It's never been my intent. I don't give a flying flip. If you want to remain Mormon, go for it. If you don't, don't. I'm not here to try to deconvert anyone. I'm here for clarity, right? That's what I'll drink to. Clarification, sure. Understanding, which hopefully the idea, the philosophy here is, it will lead us to a deeper, more profound wisdom in our own lives to help us make better decisions. That I can drink to. Everybody tip up here. I'm talking so bloody fast, I can't hardly keep up with myself. The council, now, uh, Quinn, and I've got several different, 
you can see all these stupid tabs in Quinn's book too. I wanted to start with Quinn and then move into the Joseph Smith papers. I'm just not going to have the time. Uh, Quinn notes the origin of the idea. And I've basically been telling you it was the, the saints never got reimbursed. They asked for $2 million and Congress just basically fobbed them off uh, for their uh, problems in Missouri, losing all their properties and stuff like that. So anyway, and then of course, Joseph Smith got that revelation for Zion's camp and he took the guys back there. And of course they got their butts whipped. It was a ridiculously stupid, unorganized effort to redeem Zion. Uh, they had no business doing that. And then everybody started hating on Joseph Smith, and so they got cholera, and it just about wiped them all out. Well, it was just a miserable failure, right? So kind of time to regroup and get going. But in the process, there were revelations received. Quinn notices this in the... Uh, in his text, the theocratic beginnings, chapter three, and he's talking about the uh, while the Book of Mormon, interesting, and Joseph Smith's early revelations favored a monarchy. Now that was kind of an interesting thing for me to to catch. A revelation in January 1831 stated that individual freedom. This is on page 80 of Quinn's text. Uh, January 1831 revelation stated that individual freedom existed by being subjected to Jesus Christ, the King. Wherefore, hear my voice and follow me, and you shall be a free people, it said. D and C, uh, well, the Book of Commandments, 82, and then the Doctrine and Covenants, 38, 20, and 21. Prior to the millennial rule of Jesus on the earth, Mormons believed that authoritarian government by godly men could be a stepping stone to a more perfect order. That was the theme. However, both Smith and Brigham Young forged a counterculture to the typical American culture. And with their radical vision of their own role, they wanted to be the vanguards of both the political and ecclesiastical branches of government and church to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Smith later identified that as theodemocracy, right? He, he said we can combine this uh, together, and I'll explain the ramifications to that in a little bit. So it was August 1833, about two years later, year and a half later or so, Smith included uh, the conduct of government within his domain as God's representative on earth, of course. Then you have the DNC 98 verses 4 through 11, where this document constricted the authority of the secular government. At the same time, this expanded. So we have a restriction and a push to expand. It expanded the prerogatives of this worldly theocracy. It established the primacy of religious law over secular law. And so that was basically uh, the, the foundation, the origin of the theocratic power within early Mormonism is what Quinn was tracing. 
And uh, DC 98, 23, 25, 26, 31. I'm on page 83 now real quick. Most significant is that this revelation required Mormons to obey divine rule, uh, not secular rule. Regarding war and militarism, this is the lie given to mine ancients that they should not go out to battle against any nation unless I, the Lord God, commanded them. So the revelation implied that God would reveal such commands through the LDS prophet. Within months, that implication would become explicit when Joseph Smith was commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. Right. And so it goes on. By the time of the 1833 revelation on theocracy, on page 86 of Quinn, uh, by the time of this revelation on theocracy, Smith was already establishing an authoritarian system of priesthood. And he wanted this also to be a monolithic situation. Right. And in his dictated revelations in the 1830s for several years and through several revelations, the voice of God commanded the Mormons to be one in all things and to make their decisions unanimously. DNC 101 verse 50, DNC 102 verse 3, DNC 104 21, etc., DNC 107 27, etc. So the Mormons were supposed to view any factionalism in their spiritual or temporal matters as contrary to God's will, kind of like the Lafferty's, right? I just listened to RFM's uh, excellent podcast on Dan Lafferty's interview, and I am watching the Under the Banner of Heaven series on television. And this right here is the beginning of the Lafferty mindset. It never disappeared in some parts of Mormonism. The kingdom of God first. All other kingdoms are of no consequence, right? So, and in a manner left unclear, however, in Joseph's revelations, these contradictory prerogatives were supposed to mesh with the republicanism of the United States Constitution. A decade later, the church would begin implementing this theocracy as a city-state in Illinois, Nauvoo, right? So the communitarian practices and doctrine of gathering of the saints to a common place gave Mormons increasing political importance in the voting districts where they resided, and this is what put them in the eyes of their enemies on the bad scale. And so it goes. So a major presence of ecclesiastical ministers in public offices, especially in a sectarian state, would especially cause concern. And the Mormons wanted to get into the public offices, of course. Absolutely. So the Mormon hierarchy that entered the political arena of 19th century America is exceedingly interesting, and it continues on right up into our day. So that's a brief. Quinn got the overall gist. He just didn't have all of the details of this. None of us did, but he had vastly more details than any of the rest of the Mormon uh, scholars until the Joseph Smith papers showed up.
Now, this is a well done. And again, I, I do believe in giving credit where credit's due. No joke. Uh, the Joseph Smith papers in this volume, just like their one on the book of Abraham, absolutely tremendous value. Uh, historically, this is priceless. It's fantastic. And no, it's not a conspiracy. Now, several of the videos on YouTube that you can watch as they were introducing this volume a couple of months before it was published in 2016, of course, they're putting on the, they're putting their best foot forward, right? They want, look, that these are not cheap to produce. Uh, the quality is fantastic. Seriously. The quality of these volumes are wonderful. And so they're putting their best foot forward to present, for lack of a better way to, to say this, they are presenting the more faith promoting aspects of the minutes and the records and the arguments and the debates and the conclusions and the agreements and the solutions that these 50 people were trying like crazy to come together to solve their vexing problems. The idea of having a council of men to speak freely their minds uh, Joseph even told him, he said, look, don't be dull heads with me. I don't want just a bunch of yes men. I want you to be candid, honest. You're welcome to express any fear, any hope, but tell me what you think. Let's work through this to the very best of our capability. Would to God that Mormonism would return to at least that part of Joseph Smith's magnificent vision, right? Yeah. This is what today's Mormonism seriously needs to re-implement with all of us. I'll drink to that. So why was this Council of 50 organized? There's no question and I mean, they even mentioned this in the council too, right? There's no question that the uh, the council was to be the uh, electioneering body for Joseph Smith and his presidential campaign. And now I, I know I, I've seen this now. I even actually took a, when I first got this volume and, and I read it, I was blown away by what I discovered, and I took a uh, a more or less conspiracy approach to this whole thing. It looked to me on a first superficial reading that this held some very dark, deep, troubling secrets, and it's no wonder the church hid it, suppressed it, Etc. And so I was spouting off at the mouth on the conspiracy theory. Um, and I'm going to revise that somewhat. Uh, yeah, there's some issues. There's some implications that really do need to be said for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Sidney and William Law were not invited into the council. Thank you. My, my friend, Mike Wagner, he, he's watching. Mike, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yes. And these were Joseph Smith's first presidency counselors. Uh, now, Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon ended up in it just like several of the other council of the 12. In fact, all the quorum of the 12 apostles eventually end up in it. But it's fascinating. William Law wasn't invited, and yet he was such a good friend. He was the first counselor in the presidency with Joseph Smith. So that's kind of an interesting, uh, whoops, almost an oversight on Joseph Smith's part. So the idea that this council was going to help get Joseph Smith elected. They needed to, first, they needed to find out, okay, well, what do you stand for? Well, Joseph Smith wrote to the five presidential running candidates, and they mentioned it in here. I, I, it's not necessary to worry about who they were at this point. Only three of them responded. Smith asked each one of them, he said, okay, so you're running for president what is your policy going to be in regard relative to our needs as a group of people in America? And only three of them responded, and they basically just brushed them off as unimportant. There's more than just one reason why Joseph Smith ran for president, but he recognized, and this is so interesting because it's brought out so well in this book. It was a new uh, it was a new expanded historical understanding that I gained from reading this that was invaluable for me personally. I actually gained a greater amount of empathy for the plight that the Mormons were in. Now, this, of course, did not excuse their own breaking of the law or uh, dealing with with uh, issues and things that could have been done a lot better. This is not to exonerate Joseph Smith, but there are several reasons why he ran for president of the United States. And we understand the negative reason. Well, he, he wanted personal power. He wanted to get filthy rich and powerful and all that. Uh, Yes and no, but that wasn't foremost. It wasn't about him. He had been with the saints all of his life. He formed this church, right? He had been working with these guys as witnesses, as carpenters, as stonemasons, as fellow churchgoers, as people who were dictating his revelations to all of the new converts so that they could read them. They were helping him publish. He was having meals with them. He was marrying their wives without them knowing it, etc. He had grown to love this group of people, right? So they were without question, a minority, truly. Now, uh, <laughs> here's the downside of democracy. Minorities just can't get any breaks. Uh, that's how it works at this point. There's not a lot we can do about that but we do struggle with it. We disagree with it. 
very properly so. And I don't, I don't want to make this into a political video because I do. I mean, it's going to be political because I'm talking about a political body of men who wanted to rewrite their own constitution and start their own nation outside of American constitutional influence because they felt, as minorities, they had always lost. Uh, they had their guns taken away. They had their women raped. They had their children beaten and shot. They had their men tarred and feathered, beat, chased out of town. They broke their backs building their cities only to have them burned and chased out of those cities. And no one gave them any remuneration whatsoever. And it was based because of their strange beliefs, religious beliefs. They weren't safe. That is how this group of people ended up psychologically. That makes perfect sense because that's exactly what was happening. Now, on the flip side of that, see, you can turn this into a, uh, a martyr complex, right? And in some respects, we see echoes of this uh, martyr complex even today in Mormonism, sometimes with some of their public speeches, sometimes their general conference talks, etc. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a part of the heritage, without question now. But they, in, in that regard, they were right. Well... It was the execution of the way they went about it that was just misguided. I'll put it that. And, and you know, here we go again. Yeah, the council were a group of men, you know, arguing, talking, discussing, being actually honest with each other, not just doughheads, but really, and they did have some very remarkable disagreements. There's no question about that. Uh, and yet they claim they got revelation. Uh, so, so this is kind of interesting. So one aspect of the council was to help Joseph Smith become President of the United States. On his ticket, he ran one of the main themes. Uh, he had several for sure, but one of the main themes was as president, he was going to assure that minorities were not mobocratized, they were not to be driven around, slaughtered, simply because they thought differently. Just because a man has a different belief from another man, that is no reason to persecute him. Joseph Smith was pretty cotton-picking adamant about that. And there are instances in the history of the church, that one old guy, when uh, he had a he had an understanding of the book of Revelation, the beast in the book of Revelation, and the brethren were wanting to excommunicate him for having a different interpretation. And Joseph Smith said, wait, hold it. Don't be so damn narrow-minded and stupid. It's too bad Boyd K. Packer didn't live back in Joseph Smith's day, right? He could have taken a lesson here. 
So can a lot of modern Mormon apostles right now. Joseph Smith said, I want the liberty to believe and think as I care to. And if you're going to excommunicate a man for having a belief different than you, then you are a flipping idiot. Joseph Smith came really hard down on that issue. Well, that's a part of early Mormonism that today's Mormonism really drastically needs to resurrect. Yeah. Come on. Give credit where credit's due, I say. Joseph Smith was, was excellent in that regard. Yeah. So was it for personal power? It was for the capability to stop robbing minorities. Now, the thing is, in their, uh, in their method of doing this, in their method of making it so that the minorities weren't always the one getting the short end of the stick because the majorities were buying the congressman's favors. Gee, does that sound like today's government? Yeah, right? In the process, they made... Again, we have hindsight. We we have something none of those guys did. We have the historical context in hindsight so that we can legitimately say, well, that was a bad choice. Or, hey, that was a real good choice. Or we even have the ability now to say, oh, you should have done this instead of nothing. Why did you ignore this thing? Yeah, that's easy for us. We're the armchair historians looking back in the past 200 years with all of that experience to use, right? Well, they didn't have that, but Joseph Smith kept claiming he got revelation. And so in a way, you know, I, I get it. I agree. In a way, he, he probably shouldn't have taken some of the paths that he took, but I really, truly, genuinely believe he was trying to help out his friends and family and his group of people because of their minority status and always getting the shaft. So this Council of the 50, now they did take a binding oath of secrecy. There's no question. And I mean, the minutes are very clear on that. They did. One, because they had so many enemies about, right? Well, what brought on their enemies? See, this is where the double-edged sword gets. Because yeah, Joseph Smith just kind of threw the state laws out. What? I can't marry a man to another woman? The hell I can't. I just did it. I'm the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm not beholden to the secular laws. I don't need to have a marriage license. What's more, neither did they. Oh, you only want one wife? Well, I want more, and I'm going to marry more. So he did flagrantly break the law, and there were many times when he went beyond the powers. You know, he 
packed the courts, so to speak, in Nauvoo, so that the city council and the sheriff and the, the whole group of them, every time he was arrested and they tried to extradite him out of Nauvoo, he made the laws so that he could get a writ of habeas corpus and avoid going to court, right? Well, it's true, though, his enemies really were constantly trying to get him arrested to disrupt him building up Nauvoo, you know. Uh, he wanted to be there and help. So it's a double-edged sword. Is Joseph Smith a good guy? Yeah, from some points of view. Is he a bad guy? Yeah, from some points of view. Is he downright heinous? Hell yes, from some points of view. Was he a con man? Of course, from some points. See, he's a little bit of everything. So this is complex. That's what I say. You can't just rush to judgment with the historical complexities of this very tense, short, two and a half to three year period, 1843, say to 1847, when the saints ditched out, went west. You, you can't just black and white say, oh, well, Joseph Smith wanted personal power. So he became the mayor. He became the commander in chief of the armies. He became judge, jury, and executioner. And then he wanted to run for president of the United States to become a dictator. And therefore he was totally evil. And it was all about me, 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 me. In some respects, it does look like that, but it is legitimately way more complex. Believe me, there's enough negative implications that Joseph Smith really gets skewered here. But there's no reason to invent things because the historical record we now have and as legitimate historical context and analysis needs to be given to this stuff. Now, you know, I've read half of it twice in one week. You know, how much really could I have learned? Not a lot. So this stuff does take time, right? In the meantime, we found some pretty bad stuff here that occurred that I'm trying to share with you tonight. The one thing that is not uh, historically viable to say at this point is there's just a linear approach Joseph Smith is a bad guy. He's completely in it for himself. Seriously, that's naive. I'm just not even kidding. There's way more going on than that, right? Presidency. The other thing the Council of the 50 was involved in, and this was critical because the outside tensions were getting very serious uh, because Joseph Smith was so secretive with polygamy, uh, illegally, you know, that's how it is. This man is a criminal. Let's not mince meat. And he knew it. So the secrecy. And of course, he implicated so many of his friends. Brigham Young, he secretly snuck around 
and made nighttime clandestine meetings with Brigham Young and other women to get him involved in polygamy. He used the Abrahamic test with Heber C. Kimball and his daughter Violet on polygamy, etc., 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 right? Look, it's ugly enough. That's an ugly part of all of this, the secrecy. Okay, well, look, when something like, and then the happiness letter. Have you seen the video on that? Uh, Radio Free Mormon, are you here? Yeah, he is. Oh, Radio Free Mormon, you're awesome. Wasn't it Bill Real? Who was it that uh, did that? It's like a two-hour video on the happiness letter. Uh, that is just damning to the core. It's stupid crap like that that Joseph Smith in his more uh, uninspired clandestine moments basically shot himself in the foot because of his personal desire for power or wealth or sex, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there was a lot of mistakes made. And unfortunately, he had to go way too secretive for way too damn long. And of course, he got so many other people involved, swore them to secrecy. Of course, you're going to get leaks. Then it looks even worse, etc. Look, by the time 1843 came around, now, could this perhaps be why Joseph Smith began to, especially in the Nauvoo time, was this the reason why he began to get more and more bold and deep with the doctrine uh, of all kinds, whether it's about deity or something about salvation and the three heavens and the three kingdoms in the upper tier of the third heaven. You know, when you start the baptisms for the dead, the temple work, hey, this is the time of the endowment, the involvement with Freemasonry. See, it, it, uh, in expanding and growing and getting larger contextually, historically, it gets more muddy, it gets more scummy, it's way, way, way more difficult to hold it all together. You're juggling eight plates, four bowling pins, 33 glass balls, and 99 water balloons. Something's going to break. Yeah. Joseph Smith just bit off more than he could chew. I, that's just the way it is, yeah. So, of course, he's involving as many people in the secrecy. Well, this just comes back, well, it cost him his life. I was going to say it comes back and bites him in the butt. But it comes back and bites him in the butt time and time and time and time again, and it eventually costs him his life. So, the Council of Fifty is also, at this time, there is enormous pressure. Look, they've been kicked out of two of their cities. The Kirtland Bank fiasco cost half the church, left him over that stupid, bullshit, idiotic financial adventure that he just cheated through. It's ugly, you know. 
You don't have to, you know, to always find praise for Joseph Smith is just pure phony. It's just as phony to always find the bad stuff and say he was 100% bad. He really wasn't. But man, when you find the bad stuff and there's plenty there, it's pretty ugly, right? After the Kirtland fiasco, now they're in Nauvoo. The population explodes. It's on a gorgeous setting on the bend of the river there. Nauvoo becomes the size of Chicago and the voting power as a block. Now, again, the power, you know, you say, well, wasn't he in it for the personal power? Here's why it looks that way. And that answer could be yes to an extent. I'm not saying no, but this whole concept terrified the rest of the nation because Nauvoo, as it were, overnight became the size of one of the major cities in America that have been building up for 50 years. And these people all vote together unanimously. They will take over the government. Well, that would have been great for the Mormons. They wouldn't have had any qualms with that. So this is how the political dimension comes into this. Now, you know that's going to affect the economics. You know that's going to affect the spiritual. You know, you keep the men busy building up the buildings, building the houses, chopping down the trees, the lumber. You've got the river right there. You can bring the lumber down on the rafts and the boats and the ferry boats. I mean, on and on and on. This thing just went whoop. Boom. And then all of a sudden, Joseph Smith is mayor and governor, lieutenant governor. He's commander of the largest single standing army in the nation in Nauvoo at one point, etc. He's just growing and magnifying. And everybody else looking from the outside in say, we're in trouble. This guy is a megalomaniac. But the problem is he's succeeding. And he is going to be a menace. We have him constantly running from the law and getting away with doing so many illegal activities. We have to get rid of him. So the outside, the mobocracies were growing. And that was a serious concern, of course. So part of the Council of the 50, what part of its mission was, we're not going to be comfortable in Nauvoo. They, they could see the handwriting on the wall. They said, look, as much as we love this place, uh, we can't settle here. Not permanently, not yet. So the council began to look for areas where they could expand into. Not necessarily abandon Nauvoo, but they had to find other territories. They were talking, they ended up sending delegations down to Texas to talk to Sam Houston in Texas. They were talking with the Oshkosh uh, 
sorry, his name was Oshkosh, the chief of the Miminati Indians. I can't quite remember the name of the Indian tribes. They were up there in the forests gathering the wood. I believe it was up in Wisconsin. They were the ones that asked to go down to Texas because the Indians refused to join up with them. So that avenue had been closed and they thought, well, we could come north and we've got uh, uh, up by the, the Great Lakes. We've got great land. We've got plenty of water. We've got plenty of building materials. That didn't work. The Indians didn't cooperate. They sent out missions, and, and this book specifically identifies it, no joke. They sent out missions to the Lamanites to try to convert them, to try to get the Indians to see their point of view without necessarily caring about what the Indians thought. Give them the Book of Mormon. Tell them, look, this is your story. Come and join us. We have the true prophet, right? Well, the Indians said, no, you guys are white men. We already know what the hell you're going to do. You're going to expand like crazy. You're going to slaughter us. We're the ultimate minority, and you're going to get rid of us and take over our lands. Well, the Mormons had great sympathy for that. So you can see, based on that Book of Mormon and the theology, and based on the actual occurrence of the minorities of the Indians being completely wiped out, and the minorities of the Mormons trying to get exterminated, etc. Of course, they're going to mesh, at least psychologically. That was another angle of this Council of the 50, to continue looking for lands. They were looking to Texas. They were looking to Mexico and the California Territory. Back then, there was the Oregon Territory. Orson Hyde was sent off to Congress many times by the council to get the government to protect the saints while they crossed over and got into Oregon and started their own group. The downside of that was Oregon Territory was also jointly claimed by Great Britain. And the government did not want a war with Great Britain, so they told the Mormons no. Now, see from the Mormon point of view, again, they're denied help. They've been denied money in compensation. They've been denied protection. The federal, what the Mormons did not grasp, at least it appears to me, and I might have this a little bit too simplistic, but what the Mormons did not grasp is that, based on my understanding, the, the federal government was deliberately set up with the limitations it had. Look, we came from King George's England. That was horrible. That was slavery. In the king resided both the political, military, religious, the total power. And, of course, the people were his slaves, more or less, better for worse. 
Well, that's what the pilgrims came over to get away from. That's why our constitution and our bill of rights, you know, no taxation without representation. You can't just jump into someone's house on a stupid whim and arrest them for something illegal. You have to have a trial by jury of your own peers. You don't get to be judge, jury, and execution, right? Well, we put all these limitations on the government for a reason. Unfortunately, the minorities end up getting the short end of the stick. They don't get the same protection. That's what was making Joseph Smith mad. That's what his proposal in effect would have done when they wrote their own constitution, when the Council of the 50 wrote their own constitution before they did, they secretly anointed Joseph Smith prophet, priest, and king. Now that's against the Constitution. They also did that with Brigham Young and John Taylor. Brigham Young was the successor. Then after he died, John Taylor, right? Now, some of these Mormon videos that are introducing this, it is explicit in the Joseph Smith papers. John Taylor confessed it in 1881. He said, oh, yeah, well, it was very, very secret. We didn't even tell the Mormons. We didn't even tell the saints. But we all, behind closed doors, anointed each other king, of course. They meant, now, some of the Mormons in the YouTube videos, I get this, I get this. They are downplaying this. They're saying, well, they didn't mean it politi politically. Yes, they did. Let's be clear here. If I'm reading this correctly, and I'll be happy to have this discussion with the Mormon historians if they want to go through this with us. But they did mean that politically. Now, Joseph Smith... I, I get this. Joseph Smith had to be careful. One, he was a criminal. Let's 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 quit pretending that we're in shock when we make that accusation. The son of a gun broke major laws and flaunted them because he was a law unto himself. He believed he had the higher law. So he broke the laws of the land. He used his political power and position in Nauvoo to make it so that he could never get extradited and go to trial. He got the writs of habeas corpus, etc. So he not only was a criminal and broke the law, he was manipulating the political power and he was abusing the offices, which were all combined into him. He just kept acquiring more and more and more. Yes, give me more and more and more. Okay, it makes sense because it's, it's partially true that it did go to his head, okay? I'm all on board with that, truly. But in order for the Mormons, the editors of this, to say, well, okay. However, you can't take the prophet, priest, and king 
politically, it is based upon the, uh, the Mormon endowment, the temple endowment thing, where, you know, in the future, in, if you're worthy, if you live a good life here and you're righteous and pay your tithing and kiss the prophet's feet all the time and sustain him no matter what the hell he says, don't criticize him even though the criticism is true. If you do all that, then the promise is in the future you'll be anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Joseph Smith said there is a separation. Okay, it's in this. The kingdom of God is an is an actual political entity, just like democracy. So I and and it is based on giving all people their liberty, their rights. They have a right to worship as they want without getting exercised and throwing the devil out of them and chaining them to walls and beating them half to death and making them drink poison or or be underwater for five minutes to prove their innocence, etc. All that stupid noise. No, the political kingdom of God is to deal with the temporal good for all mankind. Now, that was Joseph Smith's stance. The church of Jesus Christ is a completely different entity. It is separate. That is how Joseph Smith began his grasp of this restoring the kingdom of God. Now, the discussion in the minutes, this is some of the most fascinating parts because this is where Joseph Smith said, so help me, don't hold back. I don't want you to just agree with me because I claimed I got a revelation from God Almighty, which I did incidentally, but that doesn't mean you have to agree with me. I want your opinions. I want your feelings. I want you to speak freely without fear of recrimination. God, would that please come back into Mormonism? They would have more people in their church than they could possibly afford. They're so opposite of that today. That's their problem, right? In Joseph Smith's day, he demanded it. And yet he did say of the Council of the 50, but we have to have unanimity or, or unanimous. We all have to agree oh, at the end of the day. And, and I don't care how vehemently we argue. I don't care how vehemently we're going to discuss this. I want you to tell me the freaking truth of what you think and what you feel. Joseph Smith was pretty adamant about that. Now, give credit where credit's due. Man, wouldn't you love to see that brought back? How could that not benefit these guys today in Salt Lake City? Right? Well, we can dream, right? So they did. Well, on this issue of the, the kingdom versus the church, 
Willard Richards, one of Joseph Smith's very closest friends, one of his absolute confidants, man, he disagreed. And Joseph Smith encouraged him to ask the questions. Joseph Smith never once said the ridiculous, stupid, asinine teaching that, well, you can believe anything you want, just don't talk about it, like the cowards of today in Salt Lake City do. Shame on them today. Joseph Smith for profit in Mormonism again is what I would campaign for if he was still alive and not the prophet. That is the spirit of liberty that this man had. Give credit where credit's due. That means something. However, Richards brought up the idea this way, if I remember correctly. He said, all right, let's say that... Uh, let's say that the, the kingdom of God can take care of your housing and taxes and, you know, property rights, etc. It is the political entity to deal with the down-to-earth economics, everyday give and take. We got to get jobs, etc. Work hard for a living, all that. Okay, we get that. How does the church, which is responsible for the spiritual salvation through the Melchizedek priesthood and the endowment, how does that not help but overlap with the kingdom? Because we need you to be honest, to be endowed, right? We need you not to cheat, steal, lay with your neighbor's wife, <clears throat> Joe. Oops. Well, one out of six ain't bad, right? Uh, and so on and so forth. Don't kill, etc. So there was some overlap, right? You can see that you can see that tension and issue. As it works out, interestingly enough, the separation of the kingdom versus the church. The crazy thing is the assignment in the Council of the 50 to write up the new constitution that the kingdom of God would operate under as free people, all people, including the minorities, having their liberty, that constitution Joseph Smith left to the Council of the 50 to write. There were basically four people. John Taylor was one. Of, I can't remember all the four. Party Pratt, I believe, was one. John Taylor, the future prophet. Uh, Phelps, I believe W.W. W. Phelps was one of them. Well, they tried to write this Constitution, and they failed. They couldn't do it. So... They went back to Joseph and the council and they said, man, we can't do this. 
we don't have the we don't have the wisdom. We don't have the capability. We're not sure of all the various nuances that's going to happen. And then Willard Richards had also brought out the concept. This was even the more important concept that I don't think the council understood uh, at that time. They were they were too close to it. In hindsight, now that we have two hundred years, we look back, we can see Willard Richards' very very profound question and its meaning that really was important. He asked, in essence, he said, "Okay, so we get this constitution thing written." For the kingdom, okay, the political, not the church with the quorum of the 12 apostles and missionaries and, and relief society. No, the kingdom, the political stuff, we get this constitution written. Is it how the kingdom is going to be run? Or if we need to, can we change it as the need arises because, say, the kingdom grows from 100,000 people to 10 million? So the needs are going to change. The economics is going to go through a flow. So will the politics go through a flow. What happens if we get embroiled in war and all of a sudden we need a lot more money? Are we going to be able, using this constitution that we are drafting now, are we going to be able to add to its power? Or once we get it written, is that it? That is a very excellent question on Richard's part, wasn't it? They didn't know how to handle it. So they came back and confessed that. Joseph Smith didn't know how to handle it either. So you know what happened? <laughs> you can almost just guess, can't you? You got a revelation. And the Lord said, you know what? Forget about drafting the Constitution. You, the council, are my living Constitution. Just run the kingdom. As living people, as the living, breathing, fluctuating, growing, changing, constitution. That was the revelation. So <laughs> what really got interesting then was Joseph began running for the presidency and he was killed pretty quick after they announced his candidacy. <sighs> that changed everything. Because in the kingdom, the council was the living constitution. 
they would run the kingdom. But the council could only run the kingdom by the king's ultimate say-so. If the council had decided in the kingdom, well, this group of people didn't plow a big enough field, they need to work out another 10 acres. And I'm just using a corny example as an example. And the council said, yes, you people have to do that. The king can come along and say, no, they don't. And the council would have to abide because the king is the ultimate authority over the political kingdom, king, kingdom, king, kingdom. Now, the Mormons who make these YouTube videos talking about this book downplay the political aspect of that. I don't. I think it's fairly clear here what Joseph Smith meant. Here's the catch. Who are in the council of the kingdom of God running the show? The Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So, who is running the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints separate from the kingdom of God, the political entity, the quorum of the Twelve Apostles, with the prophet and priest's ultimate blessing and revelation. Only one man gets to receive it for the church. As it turns out, they discovered that they can't separate the two because as the prophet, priest, and king over the kingdom, he's also running the political end. So they're not separate. They're the same. When they come to realize that, they agreed, let's not say anything to anyone else about this. We will present it to the world that you don't have to be a Mormon to join the kingdom of God and you'll receive all of your liberties as a free people. You will not be trampled on as a minority. We will assure you our constitution will guarantee you all of your liberties. You can go do what ever you want in perfect freedom, you will not be oppressed. But you see, with the king in his role of prophet, priest, and king, the head of the church and the kingdom, they have effectively eliminated all of the limitations of the federal government, and they have united all of the power into one head, and they have combined church and state into one head whose governing body is beholden to him alone. And Joseph Smith told them, I am a committee unto myself. I mean it. 
he literally said that in here. It's one of these tabs. He said, so when, when you write this constitution, you guys, just do the best you can. And when you're done with it, I will look at it and I will make all the corrections necessary. And then we'll begin to run the kingdom. And we will bring in all peoples. Joseph Smith had three non-Mormons on that Council of 50. He wanted all peoples represented because as a political entity, all people wanted to, he wanted all people to come and join that kingdom of God. That kingdom of God was hypothesized to be the kingdom from the book of Daniel, which would roll forth and break all of the other kingdoms to pieces and consume and encompass the entire world politically as just one kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, God, of course, would have to run the show through the prophet, priest, and king who would dictate to the council in the kingdom, how to work out the economics. But while in the church, how to work out temple worthiness. In other words, total dictatorial power, church and state. They eliminate the democracy and get the theocracy. And you have to believe that God is running the show through me, your prophet, priest, and king. And I am worthy, or God wouldn't put me in this place. And the downside to that is, I don't trust any man with that kind of power. It is anti-democracy. It is anti-constitutional. And it won't work. If you can accept an actual theocracy, you can't have a theodemocracy with a known con man. And that's how he was viewed, because that's what the Book of Abraham papyri translation demonstrated. That's what the Book of Mormon demonstrates to everyone else. Only the Mormons simply accepted Joseph Smith saying, oh, wait, hold on. God's ding-a-linging my iPhone. Hang on, I got to answer this. It's God calling. And he picks up his seer stone and looks in the hat. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, God says, Orson Pratt, you've got a mission to go to. You need to head off to Washington, D.C. Why don't you grab a mass alignment and those guys and have them go with you? And they just instantly went. Total dictatorship. Now, if you want to see the effect of what happens when a minority gets the power to stop being persecuted, the early Christians is an excellent example. 
They were the persecuted minority for the first couple of hundred years. Constantine came along and made them the state religion, and the persecuted immediately became the persecutors. They not only forced everyone else, join the church or die, but they destroyed all the minorities' properties, all of everyone else's scriptures, all of everyone else's medicines, all of everyone else's alliances. They told them what to wear, how to cut their hair, which buildings they were allowed in on Thursdays as opposed to Sundays, and how much money they were going to donate to the church, 100%, period. Oh, and if we decide we need to conquer land and we need you in the army, you'll be here in the morning at 6 a.m., or it's off with your head. Well, you can't possibly believe Mormons are going to treat minorities that way, having been a minority themselves, having gone through so much persecution. And the very best way to see how they act is watch what they do with their own people at BYU. Can you possibly imagine the horror that they give the minority students at BYU, could you imagine the policies they make against their minorities, their own people, if that was spread nationwide? We're, we're talking serious damn horror story. Could you imagine that worldwide? No, thank you. I'm not interested. That's how it works. We have the benefit of hindsight. We also have the benefit of seeing what happens when a minority gains enough power that other minorities of lesser stature than the Mormon minority get involved with Mormonism, BYU and BYU-Idaho and all that, and then they are discriminated against. Very interesting commentary. Uh, RFM showed me a, a senator's video from Oregon. Uh, he got he was in for 12 years and then he was he was beat out in 2008 or 2009 and he presented a video. Uh, maybe he can put it in the uh, the uh, comments. Uh, but uh, this senator, uh, was a temple recommend holding senator, and he valued his temple recommend more than his election certificate. And when he was senator, he absolutely used his power to do the church's bidding. The church needed a meeting in Rome, or the church needed a meeting in Argentina or whatever, as a U.S. senator supposing to work for the people of the United States. He put the priorities of the church up first, and he made sure church business got the best breaks all the time. But that's why the Mormons want their people in office, because then they acquire the power. It's all about the church. It really is. They care about their organization. And of course they do. But if you think they're going to include you when, in fact, it's more important that they do something else for them, it's always going to come down to they are more important than you because the people are the 
minority. Now, Mormons, technically speaking, in a numbers game, are never going to be a majority people. They recognize that. My speculation on this, you can choose to believe it or not, is perhaps that's why they started pursuing the wealth game. Maybe they compensate for continuing to be a minority by becoming the richest damn minority in the history of Earth. At least that's a little bit of compensation. I don't know that. I'm just throwing that out. But So there's a lot of issues involved that this Council of the 50 gives us to recognize the methodology of becoming prophet, priest, and king in a most political aspect is continually being downplayed even today. They're whitewashing the full history, <laughs> even as we speak. They'll cherry pick which parts of this they'll want to tell you about, and they'll emphasize the parts that make Joseph Smith always look good, more or less. Some of the historians are a bit more honest, and, and they will bring out some of these things, but they don't chase down the full implications. The full implications is any organized religion given absolute power, uh, you had better hope God is real, and you had better hope God really answers prayers, because that's an absolute ridiculously stupid mistake to make. All you have to do is look at history. What happened when Christianity was given state power as the state religion. It wiped everybody out. And we went into the Dark Ages. We had the Medieval Ages where education was nil and pure power was on display and they could do anything they wanted. And what did they do? They slaughtered everyone who didn't give them their lands and they stole everybody else's property because they had the power to. They got the power, and it was so delicious, they couldn't refrain from using it. You can see the same thing at BYU right now. BYU-Idaho, BYU-Hawaii with Mormons. They definitely scream for religious tolerance for us. And that's what Orson Hyde, when he took his letter to the congressman, the congressman, the memorial to be read in Congress, the congressman asked him point blank. He said, uh, you know, I see Mormons mentioned here, but but what about all the other minorities? Have, have you talked to everybody else or is this just you guys? And Orson Hyde said, well, I mean, we haven't we haven't talked to every all the other minorities, but we will include them with this. And the congressman basically told him, he said, Dude, if I don't see Baptist signatures, if I don't see Lutheran signatures, if I don't see Catholic signatures, just you Mormons on this, that's not good enough because we don't represent just you Mormons. We represent the people of who the United States. We need 
all of the people to be on board with this. Well, of course, nobody else except the Mormons is going to agree to letting the Mormons be the prophets, priests, and kings over their religious worship lives and their political property-owning, food-raising, intercourse business dealings all combined under one man who receives revelation from his God to do his work. That's why they didn't bother telling anyone else. They thought they were going to sneak it in through the uh, legal way. And of course, the senator caught him and said, go home. Scram, dude. That's the stupidest thing as I've ever seen. We represent everybody, not just you. Well, what happened when Brigham Young, after Joseph Smith's death and the Council of the 50, nominated Brigham Young unanimously to be the next leader? Now, Brigham pulled the tactic that Joseph Smith had left the keys of the kingdom and the church with the Quorum of the Twelve. So the keys were still here. When he was gone, Sidney Rigdon tried to become the guardian of the church. And of course, Brigham Young basically just grabbed him by the ear and threw him out on his ass and said, scram, you nuisance. Brigham Young, when he called the first council of the 50 after Joseph Smith's death, the first thing he did is he got rid of the non-Mormon members of the Council of the Fifty, and then he got rid of every member of the Council of the Fifty who did not agree with his own agenda and replaced them with, guess who? Doughheads. His action showed the true intent was to have total dictatorial power. When they ended up in Utah, that's how Brigham Young ran it. That was my point in that video just a couple weeks ago on Mark Twain's impression of Brigham Young. Oh yeah, he's the king. He's the absolute monarch. That wasn't a joke. Yeah, he was funny. He was getting digs on Brigham Young about oh, polygamy and business dealings and so on and so forth. But that was not a joke. Brigham Young knew he had been anointed king. And that's how he ruled as an absolute monarch. And that's in a lot of the history books. So this wasn't a joke. It had far-reaching applications and manifestations. John Taylor was too weak of a king. He was always running off and hiding because they were after his sorry butt for polygamy. And the, the army and the military might of the United States demonstrated to John Taylor how weak his own priesthood and monarchy was. They brought in the military and he had to hide. By the time Wilford Woodruff took over, U.S. had expanded, and everyone around Utah was receiving the benefits of statehood and getting their own armies and having their own economies bolstered, and they were surrounding Utah. 
That was not what they had envisioned. So they sued for statehood, and the United States said, sure, dump polygamy, and we'll let you in. So they said they dumped polygamy, although they lived it for 15 more years. What they did is they carefully just sent all the polygamous families, and they continued performing polygamous marriages down in New Mexico and the southern U.S., well, once that was discovered, and then the Reed Smoot hearings, you know, where the prophet himself, I can't remember which one it was, Heber J. Grant or, no, 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 he was later, Joseph F. Smith, I believe it was, and Reed Smoot and all of those people, they perjured themselves to Congress. That's how much they believed in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law of the land and being good citizens. They lied like hell to cover their criminal asses about their activities that were illegal. And they perjured themselves in court, lying for the Lord. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an ugly chapter in Mormon history. But there you go. In hindsight, historical, contextual hindsight, we see their true agenda. We are beholden to no man. We are the God ourselves. We make the laws, we enforce them. That's what they're after. At least that's what it looks like to me. It appears to me. Now, I realize that's conspiratorial thinking. If you don't think that way, that's great. I'm not demanding everyone see it because I'm not a conspiracy nut either. But it uh, it appears to me that if they can't get the power by becoming a majority population-wise, and they can't, there's too many people leaving Mormonism now, it appears to me like they're going to try to more than make up for it with mucho dinero. So that is essentially what I wanted to... Oh, thank you for all the likes. Thank you for all your support and donations, etc. Don't forget to go to the backyardprofessor.org and donate there at my podcast. If you also would, if you can, uh, I say also, if you've donated here, that's great. If not, go to the backyardprofessor.org. Every little bit helps. I appreciate that. And how has everybody been? I've been seeing you guys post. I want to say, I want to say hi to a few of you. Oh, Tom Miller. Yeah. I'm Vega dogs here. Absolutely. Oh, Carva Amico. looks like I had it. At one time, uh, 110 folks here all at once. It says now there's 104. So thank you all for showing up. I believe that's my biggest audience I've had so far, which is really kind of cool. So this is fun. Anyway, Mike Langley, good to see you. Lorena Cornella, Mo, see ya. All of you guys. Yeah, you guys are fun. Hold on. I'm going to touch this button. If it kicks me off, I apologize. I don't want to end just yet, but. Forgive me, and I'll catch up to you next Sunday if it does kick me off. I'm going to try to come back down here. Oh, James Conger, welcome, Radio Free Mormon. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. Thank you, RFM. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah, I have studied this pretty hard. It's better I riff it off like that than reading it because reading it's boring as heck. And yeah, it's probably a bit more accurate, but I can always correct my mistakes later when I reread the reread again. But I think I've got the gist of it correct. James Conger, welcome. Patty Cake, looks like you've been having fun. You always do. I love it. 
Looks like there's a few new people here that I haven't seen before. Welcome. Thank you for joining us and talking with us. Um, it's a lot of fun. Splonky Doink, how you doing? Good to see you. I know Dan Vogel got here. Thanks for showing up, Dan. I'm not quite sure who else showed up. Whoever did, you're, you're Scott Sherry. Thank you for showing up. Anyway, looks like you guys had a terrific discussion. Um, someone's related to Emma. Woohoo! Yeah, poor Emma. Yeah, what about her side of the story? You'll you'll also notice that the Council of the Fifty, of course, was all men. You know, the minority. Here we go again. It's automatically built in against the women, isn't it? I I mean, wow. How do you win? You can't. That's the point. It's politics. So now look, the ideology is pretty good. It's, it's all right. I mean, the idea that, well, God, given the information uh, that God is perfect and good and loving and all just, oh, excuse me, I'm hiccuping like crazy. I promise it's not because this was ever clear. It is water. But just in case... <laughs> So isn't it interesting that uh, I think if the ideology that God is running the show because he's perfectly just and capable and all that, I think that's an excellent ideology if that's the kind of God that is really in existence and in charge of the universe. It's a great ideology. It would be fantastic. But we no longer... I'll put it this way. It appears to me that I can't trust the middleman anymore. If it's really that important to deity that his own kingdom shows up to help mankind live free, then to me it makes sense that God needs to come down here to earth and get on television just like they do on the Fox News or CNN or the Monday night at the movies or whatever. Start your own television channel and you start ruling directly. This whole middleman scheme has never panned out with true liberty and justice for all, there's always abuses. Always. God doesn't have to do it that way. There is a better way. How about directly? It's not like it's going to take up too much time. He's an eternal being. Time doesn't affect him. It's not that it's going to cost him too much money. Crap, he makes the gold. He has so much gold, he paves his own streets in such a freaking selfish way in heaven instead of giving more gold to his children who need it so that they can buy better food. You know, I mean, what is the limitation? Why in the freaking hell doesn't God just come and roll? See, my point in this is not to blaspheme deity. 
It is to say the middleman image. I'm the prophet, priest, and king, and God only has one man at a time he will give his revelation to. The middleman idea, it's always man-made because we lack the power, but we acquire much, much more of it if we invoke... Right? That's why it's done. None of that convinces me anymore. It has to be real or forget it. I'm not doing it. And again, I, I'm not saying that's what anybody else has to do. That's just my personal approach at this point until something better comes along. And right now, I think the best guide at this point, whether he existed or not, is fundamentally irrelevant. The Theology is really good because it's not theology. It's just downright good, decent, human common sense. Jesus got it right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mr. Rogers got it right. I like you just the way you are. You know? <laughs> Be friends. Work together. Cooperate. That's it. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content and help others acquire the decencies and basics and necessities, and everybody gets liberty. That, to me, makes far better sense than this middleman dork stuff that always leads to some kind of power abuse. So, yeah. My, my view is if it's so important to God, he has a stupid way of showing it, and I'm just not convinced. Sorry. Hate to be skeptical on you, God, but damn, dude, you, you've got to do better than that. Or damn, ma'am, you really have to do better than that. And the stupid thing is, if you're really omnipotent, you're already aware of that. So where the hell are you, right? Makes me wonder. Yeah, it's one of those situations. So anyway, yeah, hey, uh, it looks like I've been about an hour and 45 minutes, and this is probably pretty good. Thank you. Oh, Ruth Smart, good. I'm glad you got here. Good to see you. Lamb Chop, good to see you here too, my friend. Absolutely. Whoops. Oh, I hope I don't kick myself off. If I do, I apologize. Ford and Gamsey, welcome. Teresa Pittman, good to see you again. Um, all right, looks like all you hot dogs are still around here. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and call it uh, a night. Oh, thank you, Lamb Chop. Thank you. Yeah, I I always like to try to be informative, but but I want to be you know. Realistic. I mean, there's enough conspiracy to all this that when when it is, then yeah, let's point it out. If there's good stuff, then yeah, let's point it out. If there's bad stuff, then yeah, let's point it out because it's the whole thing that gives us the clarity, right? That's what I'm after. So anyway, oh, thank you, Lorena. That's very kind of you, sweetie. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to, yeah, Mo Sia, you're awesome. All of you are awesome. Radio Free Mormon, Patty Cake, uh, Tom Miller, all of you guys, Doug Vincent, every one of you, Vega Dog, all of you guys. So Dan Vogel, thank you again. Um, 
you're more than welcome. Uh, don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live on Mormon Discussion, Inc., right here with Bill Reel and Radio Free Mormon. Those two are doing a kick-butt job, man. They have such fantastic topics, and they bounce off each other so well. It's really fun to watch them. So, all right. Oh, hey, Huff Daddy. Good to see you. Max Jenkins, you betcha. My good pleasure. I've got thousands of more podcasts I'm happy to do. So don't forget me next Sunday. Who knows if something else comes up, I may do a rush unannounced live session on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday or on all of those days. Who knows? You know, I have done wild things before. I've often thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a Backyard Professor Live every single night for a month? I wonder if I could pull that off. That might be kind of fun to try. <laughs> we'll see. Let me do a bit more reading and, and gather my thoughts. I might have to do that. That might be really kind of cool. So, oh, Tom, no way. You guys are serious. No way. I, I don't know if I could do that or not. It'd be fun to try, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Do it yourself. Yeah. Oh, good. All right, you guys. Love all you guys, too. You're, you're awesome. You're the best audience a guy could ever have. Okay. I am going to head out. I'm going to go relax, have some dinner, and thank you again. Oh, thank you for all the likes. My goodness, that's awesome. 42 of them. Uh, and I will catch up to you soon. Er, than you might think. Who knows? If not, I'll see you Wednesday night live, and then I'll see you next Sunday. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'm seeing 94, Dan. I saw 104 at one point, so I broke 100 tonight. So thank you for all coming and listening to me just kind of spout a whole bunch of historical nonsense, excellent stuff. <laughs> Hopefully I've kept the context well. So, okay. I will catch you guys. Remember, be good, do well, have fun, be happy, sleep well, and I will see you in the next Backyard Professor live Sunday night firesides. Yeah, baby. Oh, hey, yeah, baby. We got to have a yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. I'm going to see if I can influence us to get some merchandise. BYP, yeah, baby, merchandise. A coffee cup, maybe, or a t-shirt or something. So anyway, yeah. Okay. That's enough of that noise. All right. Good night, you guys. I got to quit, man. End the stream, dude. Just remember, you guys are awesome. Don't argue with me. I'm not in the mood.